Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, Republicans delay a vote on their tax bill after a report that the economics were off by a trillion dollars. And the White House's elaborate plan to replace the Secretary of State with the head of the CIA and replace the head of the CIA with a sitting senator. It's Friday, December 1st. So, Jim, throughout the day on Thursday, all the momentum seemed headed toward a vote on the Republican tax bill. Then what happened? Well, the official scorekeepers of Congress, the Joint Committee on Taxation, sort of dropped a bomb into the process. Jim Tankersley covers taxes and the economy. They released a long-awaited economic analysis of the tax bill that says, this is how much we think it's going to grow the economy, and this is how much tax revenue we think it's going to produce. And then you subtract that from the cost of the overall tax cuts, and you find, well, will this leave a big budget deficit Mm -hmm. at the end of 10 years? And what the committee said was, yeah, it's going to raise deficits by about a trillion dollars over 10 years, which is a big number, particularly for fiscal conservatives. How much did Republicans anticipate that this bill might generate in terms of deficit? So Republicans have been coy about this, but they have generally said that they think the bill will pay for itself. Hmm. And there are $1.4 trillion in tax cuts in the Senate bill, which would mean zero extra deficits. So they were off by a trillion, roughly speaking. I mean, how could people in Congress putting together a bill of this scale be off by such an extraordinarily large amount of money, $1 trillion? Well, they say it's the committee that's off. Hmm. They say that the committee is just not seeing what they see in terms of how much growth will be created by tax cuts. Fundamentally, what this comes down to is Republicans just are really true believers in the growth power of tax cuts, Hmm. and they have talked themselves into the idea that these cuts will pay for themselves, even though no other credible model of this bill that we've seen has suggested they would come anywhere close. Okay, so members of Congress find out on Thursday night that their tax bill will blow a trillion-dollar hole in the deficit, according to this analysis. How do they react? Well, most of them kind of shrug it off. But one very important Republican, Bob Corker, and another, Jeff Flake, seem to really take it seriously. It stops them in their tracks. Hmm. It doubles down on their commitment to make sure the bill 
is fiscally responsible in their view. And so they are trying to find a mechanism by which to ensure that the bill will not lose a bunch of money and add to the debt. And so then the drama begins. What we're seeing is something that was not expected by senior Republican aides, was not expected by Republican lawmakers walking into the vote. Right now, there is a vote on the Senate floor. It's largely a pro forma vote. It is a Democratic motion to send the tax plan back to committee. These Republicans have to go back to the drawing board to address the concerns of deficit hawks like Senator Bob Corker. So what do these two senators propose on Thursday as a solution to this trillion dollar problem? So earlier in the week, Senator Corker had reached a deal with Republican leaders to allay some of his concerns on the deficit. And that deal was a trigger, what's called a trigger, where it would raise revenue by increasing taxes if tax revenues were not coming in to the degree to which Republicans had hoped they would. So essentially, if there were bigger deficits than they thought there'd be, it would force tax increases. Mm -hmm. So this is like a safety measure to protect against the deficits ballooning if this economic activity doesn't create the promised revenue that would make up for the tax bill. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of an elegant solution. Not everybody liked it. Controversial among Republicans and among wonks. But it was what they agreed to. And then on Thursday, they hit a roadblock, which was that the Senate parliamentarian said, eh, you can't do this on the bill. We just got word from Republican leadership that the fiscal trigger is not allowed under the rules of the Senate. The idea of a fiscal trigger is now off the table because it does not comply with Senate rules. There's this moment when it all comes on to the C-SPAN cameras, which are, I mean, the C-SPAN cameras are our new favorite soap opera nationally. They were during <laughs> our healthcare debate. They are again here in the tax debate. And, and it's a particular type of soap opera called Concerned Senators Standing Around Looking Worried at Each Other. <laughs> and what happened here was apparently the ruling had come down and there was a motion the Democrats had made to send the bill back to committee. And... Corker and Flake, and then Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, a third Republican, had refused to vote down that motion. And so they stood for about an hour on the Senate floor in discussion with various states of agitated Republican leaders while they figured out what they were going to do to appease them just to the point of getting them to vote no on that motion so they could keep going with the bill. And then they could, you know, retire to, again, the back rooms and the other parts of the Capitol off camera to try to figure out what they were going to do. So in other words, these three Republicans are so troubled by this trillion-dollar problem that they can't address with this trigger, that they're not going to block Democrats from sending this entire bill back to committee, which would probably totally derail the thing. And this has single-handedly held up a $1.4 trillion tax plan. This deficit concern is absolutely the thing that appears to be slowing the train down. So what now? What happens? So they're going to come back Friday morning. They're going to do some more uh, voting on the floor on some more amendments. But the big actions behind the scenes, they're going to try to craft a solution to appease Senators Corker and Flake. Now, it's important to note that they could theoretically pass this without them. They can Mm. afford to lose two votes. So if in the end they could get Senator Johnson and Senator Susan Collins and a couple of others who've been on the fence. I mean, they're very close. So they could theoretically get it through without those two guys. It just, that would be an outcome that a lot of people, I think, did not anticipate before this all started. And that would mean that 
at least 50 Republicans would vote for a bill that they know creates a trillion dollar deficit in 10 years. That would mean that 50 Republicans would vote for a bill that they believe does not create that kind of deficit, Hmm. but that congressional scorekeepers say would. Jim, what do you make of something like this? The underlying economics of this bill being so called into question, the kind of foundation of the thing happening so close to the vote. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us that this process has moved exceedingly fast and that you might expect something like this when the process is moving really fast. A speed bump, wow, when you hit the speed bump in the car, when you're going 60, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that's what it kind of feels like right now. But I think the other thing is that for those of us who have covered economic policy for a long time, we have been hearing from Republicans over and over and over and over for the last eight, ten years that debt was a primary, if not the primary, hindrance to the economy booming the way that we want it to. Hmm. And so to see them now kind of brush away those concerns to just say, hey, we don't believe the scorekeeper that we have been trying for years to get to do this kind of analysis now that they've done it, we don't believe them. I think that's jarring. And it really does come down to Republicans are professing a much stronger faith in the ability for tax cuts to pay for themselves than we've seen in a long time, particularly since the tax cuts of the Bush era did not pay for themselves. It's sort of a faith in conservative economic philosophy more than anything else. Yeah. You know, years ago, a couple years ago, I did a profile of Arthur Laffer, the conservative economist Mm -hmm. who sort of pioneered this idea. And he was espousing this faith, and it was before the 2016 election, and he was telling me how much every Republican candidate was coming to him to talk about this. And he was sort of like doing a revival of it. And I think we're seeing that right now. We're seeing a revival of this thinking and the belief that we really are held back by high taxes and that if we just cut them, we really will have extraordinary growth in America again and everything will work out. Jim, thank you. You're welcome. On Thursday evening, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said lawmakers would reconvene at 11 a.m. to begin voting on amendments before a final vote on the bill later today. We'll be right back. Wells Fargo is proud to be by the side of women and diverse small business owners leading the way to recovery. Their drive to pivot their business is showing others the way. Wells Fargo is donating roughly $420 million in grants through the Open for Business Fund that provides support to nonprofit organizations that support small businesses impacted by COVID-19. Find out more at wellsfargo.com slash together. Mr. President, should Rex, do you want Rex Tillerson on the job, Mr. President? He's here. Rex is here. We've got the president in the Oval Office with the visiting Crown Prince of Bahrain, and reporters are asking about his secretary of state. They're asking him, hey, do you still want him around? Peter Baker covers the White House for the Times. And you heard his answer. It's not exactly the most rousing endorsement right. any secretary of state ever got from a president. Well, he's here. He's here. But will he continue to be here? That's the real question and the one that everybody in Washington is asking. A shakeup in the works at the State Department. Reports of a rift between President Trump and his top chief diplomat now reaching a breaking point. An actual plan, it seems, for the removal of Rex Tillerson. 
We had uh, word this morning that John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, has come up with a transition plan for what would happen when Rex Tillerson leaves. Hmm. It obviously started generating a lot of questions. And you got a very, very soft kind of answer from the White House. When the president loses confidence in someone, they will no longer serve in the capacity that they're in. Everybody serves at the pleasure of this president until he decides that he doesn't want you anymore. The secretary of state is here and we're working hard to uh, get big things accomplished and close out what's already been a very strong and positive year. And uh, as long as he's in the job, the president uh, has confidence in him. And as soon as he doesn't, he'll be gone which, again, is not exactly prescription for long-term job security for Rex Tillerson. As secretary, I will deploy the talent and resources of the State Department in the most efficient ways possible. That may entail making some changes to how things are traditionally done in this department. So, Peter, we've talked in the past about what's happened to the State Department under Rex Tillerson. And my understanding is that during his not-quite-year-long tenure— He's driven out a lot of career diplomats, and he's really questioned the kind of traditional model of a robust diplomatic corps in the first place. Is that right? That's exactly right. And there have been so many slots that have not been filled, even among the political appointments. Forget all the career people who have left. They can't even 10 months in nominate, much less confirm people to be really important jobs. Let's Mm -hmm. take one, for example. What's the number one foreign policy challenge this president today? He says it's North Korea. So wouldn't you want to have an ambassador to South Korea in place Mm -hmm. to be dealing with that? That's one of the most key diplomatic positions in the government right now, and they don't have one nominated, much less confirmed at this point. So I'm a bit confused because what we're describing feels like what President Trump wants. We've seen with Scott Pruitt, for example, at the EPA, now Mick Mulvaney at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that this president is appointing people who reliably question the very nature of the agencies they're overseeing. And isn't that what Rex Tillerson has been doing? Well, it is, at least in terms of the mission of the State Department, right? He's closed down special envoy offices. He's closed down Mm -hmm. certain functions that the State Department has traditionally taken on and he thinks would go beyond the mandate it really should have. But he and the president are not on the same page when it comes to some of these really, really big and difficult issues like North Korea. Rex Tillerson said he was, you know, trying to open a back channel to North Korea. And the president of the United States then tweets out, I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful secretary of state, that he is wasting his time trying to negotiate with little rocket man. Save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. And time after time, Rex Tillerson has felt undercut by President Trump. And in his own private deliberations, the secretary Secretary Tillerson has made clear he doesn't have that much respect for the president. He was reported by NBC News, and we believe this to be true, that at a meeting in the summer. Tillerson referred to the president as a moron. That doesn't lend itself to a successful partnership between a president and a secretary of state. The president actually attacked Tillerson. The quote is, I guess we'll have to compare IQ tests, and I can tell you who is going to win. So Tillerson can't really do his job well at this point. Because the job of a secretary of state, and you've covered many of them, is to represent the president abroad. And world leaders know that President Trump, now quite publicly, 
doesn't necessarily believe that Tillerson is his representative. Well, that's exactly right. Look at, like, say, Condi Rice, for instance. Everybody understood that when Condi Rice, her plane landed in your capital, and she came to the presidential palace to meet with whoever, that she was close to George W. Bush, mm-hmm. and that what she said would mean something. And I think Hillary Clinton, same thing during the Obama administration. They believed that she had the clout to make things happen, and if she said something, she was speaking for President Obama. And today, if you're Russia, if you're... Japan or your China or you're in the Middle East, you have to wonder whether or not Rex Tillerson speaks for this president. Look at in the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. Nikki Haley, the UN ambassador, said that all countries should cut off diplomatic relations with North Korea. The continuing development of these missile systems demands that countries further isolate the Kim regime. So today, we call on all nations to cut off all ties with North Korea. Well, the State Department was asked about that today. The uh, spokeswoman for Rex Tillerson, is this the policy of the United States? And there's a lot of hemming and hawing, saying, well, if they want to reduce their diplomatic footprint, we would be okay with that. Hmm. Um, I'd like to go back, and if you want to check the transcript, actually, what we did is um, call upon countries to do a lot more, which could include kicking out an ambassador, uh, reducing the size of the footprint of that country, Um, reducing the number of North Korean guest workers. Just go back and double check it, but uh, that they would... So there's a lot of different voices speaking out in this administration. Peter, what exactly is the plan that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly is developing and that you've been reporting on to get rid of Rex Tillerson? Well, Tillerson would step down or be pushed out either by the end of the year or early in the new year, and he'd be replaced by Mike Pompeo, who's currently the CIA director. Now, Pompeo would be replaced at the CIA under this scenario by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who's been one of the president's top Republican Mm -hmm. allies in the Senate on national security. So you'd have a domino effect through the national security team. Yeah, it's like a chessboard. It is a little bit. And Peter, what do we need to know about Mike Pompeo? Because, of course, when you become the head of a CIA, we don't hear a lot from you. Well, that's right. Look, Pompeo has really come to the fore in part because he's impressed the president in these daily intelligence briefings. Pompeo has been asked to come himself to these briefings Hmm. every day, and he's kept these meetings energized and animated in a way that's really engaged President Trump. So he not only values Pompeo at the CIA, he has sort of made Pompeo kind of a more all-purpose advisor on things that go far beyond the spy agency's Mm -hmm. mandate, like, say, healthcare, for instance, or giving him a read on Congress, where Pompeo had served for six years. So he's become a real favorite of the president. It's, It's not surprising, given that, that he's now sort of on the front line for a possible promotion. Do we know anything about how Rex Tillerson feels about all this? Might this, oddly enough, come as something of a relief, given what he's been going through for the past couple yeah. months? Yeah, that's a good question. It could be. It certainly could be. We know he's frustrated. We know that he, you know, hasn't necessarily been enjoying the job, although his spokeswoman today said that he is. He remains, as I have been told, committed to doing this job. He does serve at the pleasure of the president. This is a job that he enjoys. And so he's continuing with a full schedule. But... You know, they're not the ones who are necessarily going to drive this train. This is going to be a decision that will be made in the Oval Office. Peter, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Good talking to you. Here's what else you need to know today. The Times reports that over the summer, 
President Trump repeatedly pressed top Senate Republicans, including Senator Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, to end that committee's investigation into Russian interference in the election. Senator Burr told The Times that the president said he was eager to see the investigation come to an end, and that Burr responded, quote, when we have exhausted everybody we need to talk to, we will finish. In interviews, lawmakers and aides said the president also told Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Roy Blunt, another member of the Intelligence Committee, to end the investigation swiftly. And I felt compelled uh, to stand up and speak out, to be a voice behind these uh, allegations that I made. I want everyone to know it was serious. On Thursday, three years after reaching a secret settlement with Congressman John Conyers, a former member of his staff, Marion Brown, publicly described her allegations against him. Some of the things that he did, it was violating, violating my body, inviting me to hotels with the guise of discussing business, and then proposition me for sex. And it was very uncomfortable and very unprofessional. A few hours after Brown spoke to the Today Show, House Speaker Paul Ryan and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi both demanded that Conyers immediately step down. I pray for Congressman Conyers and his family and wish them well. However, Congressman Conyers should resign. On Thursday afternoon, Conyers' lawyer said he had no intention of resigning. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Annie Brown, Andy Mills, Christopher Worth, Ike Sreez Kandaraja, Claire Tenesketter, and Paige Cowett, with editing help from Larissa Anderson. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Brad Fisher is our technical manager. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Peter Sale, Sam Dolnick, and Michaela Bouchard. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you Monday. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.